very good morning to you. Welcome in to today's programme. Don't forget, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so quite simply um, by just uh, texting us with thanks to Rationale Windows to 086 38 And again, that uh, number again, uh, quite simply, is uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so at 086 And from there, then, we can uh, get your comments and get them into us uh, fairly quickly. You can also call us on 091 77 and do so straight away today. Now, the uh, islanders of Inishpafen have been uh, petitioning for quite some time for the return of remains. Uh, they were taken in 1890, taken as in just taken, uh, by two Trinity researchers in 1890. They took them illegally and without the consent of the islanders or those involved in the church. And um, they have been petitioning for quite some time that the 13 skulls that were taken from the church uh, on the island in Inishpafen be returned. And I'm joined on the line by one of those people who's been working hard on this. Uh, Marie Coyne joins you on the line. Marie, good morning to you. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks for joining us uh, today on the programme. Uh, there's a big bull of bus being given to Trinity for making the decision to bring them back, but they should never have taken them in the first place. No, definitely not. They were stolen in the dark of night and brought out in a bag on the boat and the boatman asked them what was in the bag and they said it was butchine. So it was brought to Dublin and then they were examined or whatever for a very length of time they needed and then they were just left there and forgotten about until we discovered or I seen an exhibition in the Museum of Country Life by Kieran Walsh and from there I contacted him and asked him how could I, we go about getting them back and have them reburied in Boffin. Mm. And do we know anything about the, I mean, we're going back a long way now, we're going back, 1890 is when this happened and uh, again, a lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. But do we know, uh, has DNA been done on them or otherwise? Not that I know of DNA, but I think there was an age test done on them and on one at least and it was dated to around the 16th century i'm not even sure i think how many female and male skulls are there but again they're they weren't theirs to take and then to no, hold on to them. No. and it's not as if by the way when you knocked on the door and said can we have them back that they said of course you can i mean this has been a what about a 15 20 year campaign Maybe it took off in 2012. I, lo- I learned about it, but then we made an issue. But there was in between, there was a change of provost and different things, and there was always seems to be some hiccup along the way. And I guess Trinity didn't want just to give hand them back because they wanted to set up a protocol going forward for when other groups come looking for remains that they have an ev- evidence based submissions and you go through a certain amount of hoops. But we didn't know what the outcome of these hoops were, and there always seems to be some some other issue. So it was a lot of emotion and anxiety around. And we didn't even to the last minute. I was fingers crossed, sitting in the house, waiting for a phone call, hoping that they were going to say yes, that they were giving them back. And when did you get that phone call? Um, Ash Wednesday, would you believe? Ash so Wednesday, they can yeah. return to ashes, hopefully in Boffin soon. Uh, and again, I mean, it's, it's just, I suppose really if you throw, throw it out, um, how, how much more do Trinity have? Do NUIG have anything in the botany department over there? Um, or any other university? I mean, 
This might not just be unique, Marie, it to uh, Trinity. No. I know there's um, probably about 400, 400 or almost 500 human remains in Trinity. But again, I haven't a clue where they're from. A lot of them are from around the world because that's what was being done at the time, taking remains from places to do experiments or examine them and see what the differences were or trying to find a true Irish person or... I guess along the West Coast, they had the notion that the most Irish person would be along the along the West, out in the further reaches. Yeah. And But if somebody rem- donated their remains to medical science or whatever, that's fair enough, but you don't go to an abbey in the middle of the night and rob human remains. And wh- again, you, you start this when you, when you started this process, but when did it become apparent that there were definitely... There, these were from Boffin and need to go back to Boffin. There was a picture in the catalogue that went with Kieran Walsh's um, exhibition on the Headhunters and the albums of Charles Brown. And so it was through those photographs, there was a picture in Trinity of a tag on top of these skulls, or Inish Boffin skulls. So... And mm-hmm. from them photographs and from talking to Kieran Walsh, that's when I really knew that they were there. And can I ask you just, I mean, so the decision has been made by the, the current provost, um, Dr. Linda Doyle, so well done on that one, uh, to give them back and they had to put procedures in place and you've, you've explained that very well. Um, but will they pay for the repatriation in Inishboffin of the... As far uh, as I know, yes, but um, we're not... Um, even if they don't, we don't care. We just, we want to just get them back. You know, I was prepared to pay for whatever myself because it's become such a passion mm. and it's be, been so annoying for so long that you can't put this to sleep. And, you know, it, it's it's just got on my nerves a lot. Would you be concerned that there could be descendants of yourself in, involved? It's in not that? even about that. I don't know whose descendants. It's not. It's It's the disrespect. Like yeah. I, a few number of years ago, I did a book on the graveyard and I was in the graveyard for almost coming and going, bringing different local people to the graveyard, finding out who was on graves. And I was in and out of that graveyard, I don't know how many times, and documenting what was written on the headstones. And then we started a project a few years ago, like adopt a grave. If there's no one anymore to clean a grave that you take on cleaning this grave and bringing it back because there's so many graves there that are just left unattended because there's no one nowadays to attend to them that we started cleaning as many as we could of the graves and that's kind of an ongoing thing but it's it's respect for the dead and there are people from Bop and they were here they were in our little abbey in St. Coleman's and that's where they should have been left mm. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I mean, it was pure theft, so it was. Uh, yeah, tri- tri- it's like I'm, I always was trying to put the point across to try, if this was your great-grandmother's skull, trying to make them feel, because I thought sometimes, how do you make these people feel that this is wrong? Like what happened with Omi as well, Omi Island, there's remains from Omi that are not returned, and that's another ongoing campaign. But if someone came today, if you bring this to the modern era, you wouldn't be allowed to do that, you know. Legally, you wouldn't be allowed to do it under current constitution. That you, 
I mean, it would be. They'd be all out war. There would be. Well, it would be classed as desecration and would be immoral, yet, of every other adjective that you want to think about this morning being used. But because it was 1890. But well done to you and the crew, though, for sticking with this and and putting it up to Trinity. It became, yeah, it was like a a dog with a bone. (laughs) You felt there has to be some outcome to this besides a negative outcome. Mm. Because even if the answer was no the last day, like, I think they would look terrible and the media have really helped as well and papers and teenage everyone who has highlighted this because they're putting it out there and in the minutes of trinity's meeting within themselves they had mentioned about the media coverage of it so the more pressure that was put on from all angles the better yeah, but if, once they once they can be brought home, and can you yeah. can they be put resting back in the abbey again? Well, it's a protected structure, so I feel that we should leave the abbey alone, but we'll bury them in the old part of the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So, I think the abbey is like originally before they were put into the abbey, they were buried in the outskirts all around the old part of the graveyard. And the custom at the time, as far as I can understand, is even today it happens where you open a grave, which was my grandfather's grave. If there was remains in it, then they would be put into the church and the new person would be buried in that plot. Okay. But that practice died out, so the remains that was in the graves were just put down under and the new coffin was put in on top. Yeah. It's like even today we have a new part of the graveyard, but it's full almost and we're probably in the future we'll have to be getting another part to make um, a third part to the graveyard but a lot of people still want to be buried with their parents or with their someone that's passed belonging to them could be grandparents that's the number of years have passed where it's okay to bury someone it's a fascinating story wouldn't you just love to know who the people are who the 13 skulls are and I, I think there'll be our 13 warriors going forward. Yeah. Yeah. We can look to and admire and I, we might never know their story, but I know well it was a hard story because what was in Boffin way back then? Nothing. You Not know, them. they had hard lives. That's another thing. There was no electricity or running water, no facilities, nothing. You know, so they, if anyone deserves respect, they res- deserve it. But we were talking, um, Marie, I'm Dr. Marie Coyne from Minish Boffin, we were talking about Boromore on Friday last in Tonerys on the programme. We went back uh, 50 years and life was tough uh, in the city then. So I can only imagine yeah. how tough it was 50 years ago, never mind. Uh, how many years is this? We're going back to 1890. So we're going back 133 years at this stage. And some of the pictures that Haddon and Dixon did take that give a huge insight into the lot what people were wearing and the conditions they lived in and what they did write about the conditions, you'd be thinking, how, if I had to go back to that, I'd be dead in a week, you know. It's just yeah. amazing what people put up with and had to deal with. And how they survived. Yeah. I suppose so. so the, like, the, 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 the length of time that they lived was an awful lot less than what people currently are living uh, um, in their yeah. lives. I mean, that's... It's like when I was 12, electricity was turned on in Inchbuff, and so our younger childhood, was we grew up without electricity. So it was, I'm glad I grew up in that, like, because I knew what it wasn't to have electricity in the house. I knew my grandmother lived with us. I got an old world growing yeah. up 
feeling, you know. So it made you understand that, you know, even my grandmother, you'd look at her hands and, you know, you'd, you'd know that these the stories they were telling us when we were kids, like that was hard lives too, you know. So I guess in a way from growing up with an older person and having that influence and having no facilities like electricity and running water came to the houses in the early 70s. I was born in 1970, so I don't think there was running water when my mum would have been washing cloth nappies, you know, no. early in the early years. So it was like an era that was a big lot of changes from our era to, to modern day Boffin. So Maria, are you saying there was 82 that you got electricity on the island? Yeah. Yeah, wow. I was 12 or, no, was I, 82? I was 12 years old, yeah. Wow, because I remember, um, I spoke about this a few weeks ago, I remember where we live now and I had a granddad behind us, um, and I was born in 62, so I'm eight years older than you, but I remember the electricity going into the house there, vaguely remember, but I remember being there and being dark and having the tilly lamp and the smell of the oh. paraffin. But but I remember that, but like that, I'd be going back to 19... Oh, that'd be 67, 68, when, maybe 69 when the electricity came in there. But you're saying a further 12, 13 years on from that. Before yeah, because I think the islands were like lagging behind. Some people had generators, okay, but our family didn't. So no. like there was hotels on the island and they had, but then some, I we didn't have that in our house. So. No. Like most of the island homes. Well, you're all the better for it, so you are, Marie. <laughs> I'm so glad that I grew up yeah. and that I experienced that little yeah. bit. I think you if know. you if you do that, and more than myself, uh, if you do yeah. that and you experience it, you, you have a better grow for life then because you know yeah. what they went through. But look at, listen well, don't you? And uh, I will look forward to being with you uh, in the near future when the 13 skulls have been uh, repatriated. And perhaps the other colleges, the other universities right around the country should now have a look at what they have in storage and see, can that be repatriated yeah. uh, back uh, to the families in question? Even, yeah. Even, Even if they had a list of what is in these places, you know, that'd be amazing if they would give out that information. Mm. Well, we've lived through the mother and baby home, you and I, and other bits and pieces. Yeah. Could this be the next big scandal as to what people took, stole, illegally stole, and brought to Trinity, be it in 1890, I don't care when it was, it was still illegal. Mm. And uh, let's do, do the right thing now and release it back into the various communities. Marie Coyne, thank you for joining us today on the programme. And again, if you have uh, any thoughts on it, feel free to uh, call us on 0917700077. Or you can text us straight away on WhatsApp to 086 38 33 55 It's 10.23, we're back just after these. We're looking at drugs all sorts of drugs next. Galway Tones, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. A very good morning to you. Welcome in to today's programme. Now, last week when I was off, uh, the Government Chief Whip Hildegard Nocton admitted that she tried cannabis in her 20s, but said the drug was not for her. TG, who was uh, also Minister of State at the Department of Health, was speaking after the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs was formally established by the Dáil last week. And uh, she confirmed that she has not taken illegal drugs um, since her 20s. And the Minister of State at the Department of Enterprise, Neil Richmond, said he smoked cannabis when he was younger, but he did this in the Netherlands. Uh, but also, you might remember last week, the Minister for Justice, the Acting Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, said 
uh, that the use of drugs in recreation settings is far too prevalent. He also said people should be aware of its links to gangland crime and the deprivation it caused in uh, some communities. And he said he was not aware of illegal drugs taking uh, in Leinster House, but if anyone had any information, they should tell the Gardaí. Let me go to MEP uh, Luke Ming Flanagan, who joins me on the line as well today. Uh, Luke, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Kate. Thanks for joining us uh, today. With all this going on, is it time to look at legislation here, right across Europe, not just Ireland? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, when it comes to cannabis anyway, I think the game is up on prohibition. Uh, Come the 1st of January next year, you'll be able to walk into a shop in Germany and purchase it. Likewise, in uh, Czechia, you can already, in Malta, if you're a member of a club, get them to grow three plants for you and you can go in and purchase it at cost price. Uh, But the only difference between uh, the situation in Germany, Czechia and Malta and where we are here is uh, you will be able to get cannabis in all the countries, including Ireland. Uh, The difference is, as of January the 1st, it'll be the Kenahans who are getting the money in Ireland and in the other countries that I mentioned, uh, the tax will be going to the education services, to the health services and uh, much money will be saved on police time so they can actually go after real criminals and solve real crimes. Okay, come back and say, how do you mean the Kenahans? Are you saying that it will be, it will not be illegal to have it, uh, but you'll have to buy it from a gangland source? Oh, no, no. In uh, in Germany, as of January the 1st, uh, unlike the Netherlands, uh, it will be a fully legal regulated market uh, whereby it will be grown by licensed growers. It will, so- it will be sold by licensed shops and uh, there will be tax paid on it. Uh, you will know what strength it is and uh, there will be no adulterants in it and you'll know what strain you're using. And uh, also, if you try and purchase it under the age of 18, um, uh, the people who sell it to you will be in serious trouble. So uh, at the moment in Ireland, uh, dealers don't ask for identification. In January in Germany they will and in January in Ireland they'll still be selling it to 16 year olds. But it won't be legal to have it and it won't be illegal Uh, if you're caught with it you will still be charged with possession. No, in Germany it'll be 100% legal. Outright legal. Yeah, yeah. But in Ireland, though, if you are caught with cannabis, you will be done. Oh, yeah. And in, in, in Ireland, uh, in Germany, if you're caught with this, uh, uh, they'll have a conversation with you about uh, what strain you have and there'll be no criminal record. In Ireland, uh, potentially, you could get a criminal record, which would prevent you from traveling to many countries around the world, uh, would uh, potentially lose your child in a custody case in court, which potentially, uh, most likely, will prevent you from getting any job in a profession. So in Germany, you'll be able to go on with your life and uh, the money will go to the tax system in Ireland. It'll go to criminals and you'll have your life destroyed, let's be honest, unless you're an exception like myself. Uh, I'll go back to the exception like yourself in a moment, but can I just ask you, I mean, Germany is in Europe. So why, go back to my initial question, why isn't this dealt with at a European level? Uh, the reason why it and it's a very, it is a very good question because people have asked me like, well, if it's happened in Germany and you're in why MEP, yeah. why don't you yeah. make it happen here? The reality is that uh, the European Union doesn't have competence in all areas, and in particular, it doesn't have com- competence in health. There isn't a common health policy, whereas there is a common agricultural policy. So because of that, Europe won't be able to make that decision. But Europe 
when it comes to um, industrial ca- cannabis and uh, cannabis grown as a, a fuel crop, it does regulate it. And we'll actually be discussing that at the Agri Committee tomorrow. And I will be making the point that at a time when farmers are struggling to make a living and when they're being challenged with a lot of new environmental laws, etc., being brought in, I think it's time we need to look seriously at the idea, and I'll say it again, that the farmers of Ireland make the money out of cannabis, whether it be industrial, recreation or medical, rather than gangsters who are basically going around shooting people to maintain their market share. Yeah, but I mean, how do you change that? I don't. It'll, look, it doesn't bother me. I've never smoked cannabis. I've never smoked full stop. Um, but I mean, how how can it be changed so that for future generations they're not getting that black mark if they're caught with um, for of possessing cannabis or illegal drugs like that? Well, uh, the, obviously, the best way the best way to deal with it is uh, is to uh, is to legalise it and uh, move it into a regulated system. And uh, okay, when I initially started saying this, and when I ran for election initially in 1997, I didn't have any actual models out there that were shown to definitely work. But we have models now, whether it be Uruguay, uh, whether it be Malta, whether it be the United States of America, and um, there are models there that work and uh, they provide income for the state, they don't cause a problem for the state and it can be done. There were a few different things uh, thrown in countries' ways when they tried to do it before but let's be honest it's a game changer now that Germany are doing it. Up until now the question was was it, a, was it contrary to the United Nations uh, Convention on Drugs? Germany's interpretation of that convention now so that they can push this through is that it's about the abuse of drugs. Then there was an issue with the Schengen Agreement Obviously, if you live in Germany and they're part of the Schengen zone, you can travel to all the other Schengen countries uh, without showing your passport. Germany is now arguing that the Schengen Agreement talks about illegal drugs. In Germany, as of January the 1st, cannabis will be legal. So when it comes to the Schengen Agreement, yes, you can move legal drugs across the border, but it will it will create chaos across Europe for all the other legal systems. So it will, we will have to either catch up or we'll have a very strange situation. And I think we will just catch up. At the moment, people use cannabis in Ireland. Under a legal regime, all you're changing is the person who's selling it and the quality of it. People have already made up their minds on cannabis. You look at the polls, you look at uh, people's attitudes on it, and it has changed. And I did hear what Hildegard Nocton said and it's good that she's honest about it but she is lucky to be honest about it because if she was in many other professions and if she had been unlucky enough or you can look at it another way if the system of prohibition had been efficient enough to catch her Sadly for her now, she probably would never have become a teacher because it would would have shown up on her record just the same as it shows up on my record when I couldn't travel to New York as mayor of Roscommon because I have a criminal record for possession. She won't have that problem this Patrick's Day, even though she did the exact same thing that I did and many others. And so can you now not travel to the States at all? 
I can travel to the United States of America. I can travel to Australia. Uh, many countries, it would be a problem. And what I would be calling for, and it has been called for in the United States of America, is that when the law, and I say when the law is changed on cannabis, because it will be changed, it's just a question of how exactly it will be done at the moment. And when this happens, what needs to happen is that the over 100,000 people, I'm not exaggerating, and the Department of Justice can't give me definite figures, but I know it's over 100,000 people in this country of a criminal record for possession of cannabis. That record needs to be expunged to free those people to get on with their lives, to free those people to travel if they need to travel, because at the moment they can't and it causes severe problems. And Keith, I get a call every couple of weeks and they are on the phone line or they write to me and in the letter and in their words on the phone is absolute and utter terror. Like, for example, one person rang me, they're training as a doctor. They were out for the night, they got caught in possession of cannabis, they have a court case coming up. And I'll be honest with you, these are the words that they have used. They said to me that they were suicidal over it. I tried to calm them down saying you'll be all right. But at the end of the day, I have to be honest with them. If they go to court and they get a criminal record, their life's potential when it comes to a job is pretty much obliterated. And that is a fact. That needs to change. And when this law changes, they need to expunge those records and to free the potential of all those people to get on with their lives. Because at the moment, they actually can't. And unless it happens to you, you don't know how significant it is. Okay. But it is very, very significant. Yeah, but just come back to yourself, Donald, for one second here. So you were saying because of uh, criminal records, was that back in 97 you got that or when? Back in 97, 98, 99, on five occasions. Okay. But, but it, it, does, it not, does it not terminate after, say, a seven-year period, or does that criminal record stay with you for the rest of your life? Yeah, I have. Yep, there, there is a thing where you can apply to get it expunged, but I have it there. That's it. That's, that's on my... That's on the thing. If I if I truthfully fill in a job application, um, uh, you you will find that. Um, well, hopefully it's for the environment, uh, they'll use it as toilet paper. But in other words, it'll be burnt. You know, they won't give you the job because basically there's a lot of other people applying for the job and they don't have a criminal record. So you you you'll be the one who's left behind. And then you'll get people who'll come out and say, well, there are statistics that show that people who use cannabis are less industrious, etc. Well, it's fairly hard to be industrious if you have a criminal record and no one will give you a job and then you try and leave the country and you can't do that either. So um, it doesn't help anyone. And look, at the end of the day, Keith, the, the ideal scenario, and I have, three, I have three daughters, the ideal scenario is they'd never drink, they'd never smoke, they'd never use any drugs at all. They'd be out running every day and they'd be very, very healthy and watch their diet. But the reality is that people do these things. And if they do these things, then they should be able to do it in the safest way possible. We know it happens. And I'll say it again. I think this is the most important point. If you're saying you're not in favour of the legalisation of cannabis, you're not saying you're going to stop people having cannabis. All you're saying is that they will buy it in an unregulated market of people who could potentially shoot them as opposed to going into a shop and buying it. And the tax money goes to the exchequer. And then if they do have a problem, Problem with cannabis, or if they do have a problem with alcohol or any other drug, at least they can go and get help. At the moment, if you try and go and get help, you're going off telling someone that you've broken the law, which really doesn't help you. 
It doesn't, but in, in the long-lasting result is what you're after outlining to us uh, from there. Uh, there's a good few people um, agreeing with you, I have to say, uh, today. And uh, Keith, this uh, caller said, or well, this person doesn't agree with you, there's a very simple way to avoid having a criminal record. Don't break the law. Uh, full stop. Good morning, Well, Keith. there was a very, very, very simple way of uh, not breaking uh, the law as a homosexual at one stage in this country, and that was to basically deny who you were. So there are very simple ways not to break a law, but there are unjust laws that do need to be changed. And this is one of them, without doubt, because the goal, if the goal was to reduce supply, it has not succeeded because it's as easy as hell to get it. I got it in Castlery Prison when I was there. If you can't keep it out of Castlery Prison, how the hell can you keep it out of a private house? It hasn't reduced supply. It hasn't reduced demand. And all it's done is made it more dangerous because a bit like with prohibition of alcohol, when you had prohibition of alcohol, you have to transport this illegal substance. You transport the strongest version of it possible. So you have to uh, you have to move around the least possible volume. Likewise with cannabis, the reason why there is more really, really strong cannabis out there is because it is easier to conceal for the volume of of active drug in it than if it was a milder one. Whereas if it was legal, you would have a milder one. At the moment, it's a bit like, you know, in an illegal alcohol environment, the only thing that people would be buying would be putching and really strong stuff. But in a legal one, like we have with alcohol, people generally don't go for the ridiculously strong stuff. And if they do, at least if they do, at least they have a figure as to how strong it is. At the moment, when someone buys cannabis, they really haven't a clue what they're buying if they don't have much experience with it. So particularly for people who wouldn't have much experience, it would make it an awful lot safer. All right, MEP Luke Ming Flanagan, thank you for joining us uh, today and an interesting argument uh, being put there. Well, your thoughts and comments, feel free to let us know, please, to the comment line on our WhatsApp number and our text number 086 38 That's 086 38 He could get it while he was incarcerated in Castlery Prison? Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Click and Collect allows you to collect your order whenever suits you. Hey, very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. Uh, lots of comments coming in from all sides and uh, not a lot of love for Luke Bing Flanagan, I have to say. Could you remind Luke Bing Flanagan he has been in jail more times uh, than any other criminal? Uh, Keith, the hurling match between Galway and Limerick yesterday was a disgrace for a man to get a belt in the head with a hurl and not have the other player sent off as a disgrace. And uh, Keith, I feel so much better knowing that the RAF are monitoring what's going on. Uh, this uh, caller said, delighted. Now, let me go though. A lovely story has come our way. Um, so the Irish uh, made Seahorse Man documentary is now available on Netflix. We're going back a good few years on this one, I think. And again, um, Renewed action has been called for to save our seahorses and award-winning Seahorse Man documentary, which sparked um, a launch of a global Save Our Seahorses campaign is now available to view on Netflix as well. If you want to get further details, just go from there. But a man who's been involved with seahorses for a long, long time, and I, th- I think was the first person to ever join us on this programme, uh, was Ke- Keelan uh, Doyle, who joins you on the line. Keelan, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? How many years ago did we start talking about seahorses? Are we going back about 25 years on this? 
we 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 would be yeah we're we're and hopefully we're talking about lots of we there might be much love for Luke Ming but hopefully there's lots of lots of love for the seahorses <laughs> which is what we're trying to trying to create yeah I mean you were ahead of your time really when you started the seahorses weren't you and we yeah. we were we were based I don't know if you remember and I was I was on with you many times based out in Karna in, right. in Connemara and uh, as you say we were we were very fortunate in that. The first person to, to to actually breed the seahorses in the world, which was a huge, I suppose, breakthrough. If you like, nobody had ever managed to do it, including the the Chinese who have been pumping huge money and they've been at it for many years. So it was a big, it was a definitely a big deal. How then did the um, documentary come about? So what happened was we we I suppose. The realization was that we'd managed to breed the seahorse, but what could we kind of do with this and what was kind of going on? And and I went undercover to China to to and the documentary is kind of some of the older footage and then some some newer footage that we've sort of managed to sort of redo in recent times. And I went undercover to China to sort of show and try and see what exactly was going on. And it was it was absolute devastation. I mean, most seahorses are taken illegally and they're used as natural aphrodisiacs in China. So I went over there and posed as a seahorse businessman and had an undercover camera. It was an extremely dangerous thing to do. And as I look back at it, I often think, was I was I crazy? But we, we, we succeeded and got access for the first time ever to sort of these Chinese medicinal factories where they grind up millions of seahorses every year for the, the aphrodisiac market. Uh, there was a very big market over there. I mean, weren't you very brave, as you said, though, to do what you did? Because, I mean, China to this day is very, very tightly controlled. And there was you, one man and his camera. Yeah, I mean, f- brave or foolish. I mean, even only recently, um, there was a there was a customer of actually we, we, uh, of our shop. There was a customer who who was very high profile, and he was actually locked up in China for three years. And um, you know, this was this was just because he had a little bit of information that the Chinese wanted, and uh, they kept him there. I mean, I'm sure people might have seen him on the late late and what have you. And it was it was huge. So I mean, if they had realised what I was doing, um, you know, we, we we would have been in big trouble. And it, it put me in some very uncomfortable situations because they brought me, and you can see it in the documentary. They brought me to this sort of very high-end restaurant and everything in the restaurant that's for for eating everything is alive so i'm sort of there looking at these hugely rare and endangered species and everything is is for the table but i mean i couldn't not eat it because you'd blow your cover so i had to kind of go through this experience and and this was all to keep our our sort of our, our cover because otherwise you know you may not you may not have got out of there alive sort of thing and did you have to eat them raw? So no, they 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 some of them would be raw, some of them I mean I'm talking like really rare pangolins and you know they had some some really rare species of turtles and monkeys and everything was literally literally alive and they would either eat them raw or they would cook them but of course I was point I was with a translator and I was pointing out to, to the translator going Jesus you know that's a pangolin that's one of the most rare species in the world and they thought by me pointing out to it that I actually wanted to eat it and and 10 minutes later this beautiful creature arrives out on on your plate with the head and and you know you have to eat it because as i said it's it's the most you know if if you don't eat it it's an insult to their culture and and they take it extremely personal um and of course we were filming this with an undercover camera 
through the whole procedure. And come here to me and who picked up the tab on that, uh, Dar? <laughs> well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't myself. I was happy just to get out of there. Um, but it was. It was a fascinating experience, and and I suppose the whole thing was to try and really just highlight what's going on. And we're not trying to slate the Chinese. This is not all about criticizing them. This is about trying to help you know, them solve the problem because they have a, a demand for seahorses going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years. This is like somebody coming to Ireland and saying you, you can't eat spuds or you can't drink Guinness anymore. This is this is their culture. So what we're trying to do is teach fishermen who currently um, um, fish seahorses, we're trying to teach them how to farm seahorses. And if they can farm them, well, then they don't have to take them from the wild. So it's a very modern conservation approach. Can I ask you about the aphrodisiac uh, content? Uh, has it been proven uh, that um, ground down seahorses are an aphrodisiac? It's, it's, it, hasn't, it hasn't been proven and the only reason behind it is that seahorses stay together for life. So they never go off with another one. And when one, when one dies, the other one, believe it or not, will actually die of a broken heart a couple of weeks later. So this is the only reason why Chinese people believe that they have aphrodisiac qualities. But so they're, they're, like, they're the number one ingredient and, and they're more expensive than gold, would you believe, in China? But if it's not proven and people are foolishly going along with it, um, if it could be disproven and leave the seahorse population alone and knock it on the head, pardon the pun, and away you go. Well, well, you know, it, it's a very good point and that's part of what we're trying to do with education. But, you know, it's amazing when you go and visit China because the young people are, are nearly more Western than we are and it's all into Western music and Western fashion. But when it comes to medicine, they still believe that Eastern medicine is far superior to ours. And there's lots of parts of their medicine which is um, extremely beneficial. But when it comes to seahorses, it's just that sort of placebo effect. And, you know, the scary thing is that as the sort of economic situation, like China is a very wealthy co country, so more and more people can afford seahorses. So traditionally, they would only take them as a soup. Now they take them as, as tablets because young people don't want to sort of have to waste time making soup. So small seahorses that were traditionally left behind are now being fished for the tablet market. So the wild populations are being, are being wiped out. And, and our research has shown that seahorses will become extinct in the next 20 to 30 years unless something happens. Well, then we have to disprove that it is an aphrodisiac and get the message out. And they might put, that, put, the, put them on the oysters and, uh, and, and the Guinness instead. Oh, maybe, put them on know. the oysters, yeah, from there. What you need now, though, to do, Keelan, is you, you need to do a study in this Keelan Doyle and figure out and get some of the, the bright scientists that we have in the University of Galway here and otherwise to work with you and figure out. And then that, that'll hit the world headlines and then they might just turn away from them. Can I just ask you in relation to, uh, did you see monkeys in the restaurant as well? Yeah, they, they would have everything from monkeys to obviously shark fins to um, pangolin, um, you know, mammoths. Well, monkey, sort of different. Like, but would they kill the monkey and give it to me to the monkey? They would, yeah, they would. I mean, they, they eat everything. I mean, there's nothing that's sort of the pretty monkey? much not, not eaten. I mean, one of the, I mean, some of it's very sad. I mean, they eat the, the, the penis of a, of, a, of a seal. So like they kill a seal and they discard all the body except for the penis. So, like, they literally had on the on the menu, they had seal penis, 
Um, so it's 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 unbelievable. Like they're they're and and this, as I say, goes back so many years. And I mean, one of the the scenes in the documentary is I went undercover to the sort of most famous Chinese medicine doctor, and and I told him I was kind of I was struggling in the in the in the bedroom. You know, I was having man problems, and uh, just to see what he would recommend. And sure enough, he recommended me to take seahorses and he gives you a prescription, which you think you're going to a chemist, but you go around the corner and the prescription goes to a, you go to a restaurant and the restaurant cooks up your, your prescription, shall we say. So that was a, that was a, a learning experience. And you had nobody to share the bedroom with. No, no, I was uh well my, my other half is a is a Karna woman, so she was uh she was back home in Ireland, back home in Kutamara, so I was I was over there climbing the walls. But no, I mean it was it was I suppose people often ask, you know, why I've never eaten seahorse in my life. And I think we went over there and we wanted to sort of learn from the Chinese side of things, you know, what is this? Does it okay. work? Why do they believe in it? And exactly as you said, and your idea is brilliant can we convince them that there is is something alternative? Because, you know, young Chinese people in particular, they, they, they want to change. They realize there's, there's, there's problems and, and they are up for sort of looking for alternatives where the older generation maybe not, but it's, it's all about the young generation. That's where we're going to make things happen. All right, well, listen, try and get that research done. Uh, again, the documentary is on Netflix. And uh, again, if the, the, the documentary title is Our Seahorses. So it's it's Seahorse uh, it's Seahorse Seahorse Man and also our, the the website SaveOurSeahorses dot com. So we we've launched and we've got charity status now, which is fantastic. So it's a campaign um, to try and save seahorses, and we're focusing initially around Ireland because there is actually a native Irish seahorse population, which you'll find around the Galway coast. Um, so we're big in that, and if anybody in in Galway wants to see our seahorses. We have our, our, our shop seahorse aquariums in Lisbon so you can go in and have a, have a look at them in there. Alright, Keelan, keep up the good work and uh, good luck with the research uh, on this one. Uh, but well done to you. Thank you, Dee, for joining us uh, today. Again, if you want to get further details, you can go to Netflix, put in Seahorse Man and go to do that at some stage during this week. So yeah, uh, but marine biologist Keelan Doyle, thank you for joining us uh, today. Ideally poised uh, to demystify the aphrodisiac and uh, prove is it or is it not in seahorses and then the horses can live happily ever after uh, from there. Again, your thoughts please and comments to the comment line uh, today on 0917 and uh, Keith, this uh, caller said, I prefer cannabis uh, to seahorses. Oh really? And another caller said, uh, Keith, oh my God, we parents of teenagers have enough to monitor uh, please cop on Luke rather than put, bringing this to us a, again. And another caller said, who's that on the radio, Keith? I haven't heard him since the last election. His only interest now is legalising drugs. Ah, for God's sake, this caller said. Another caller has sent us in a scam too, by the way, which came from eFlow. And I got it myself. AAB, due to unusual activity in your car, has been placed on hold. Don't ever respond to any of those type of texts that you get. And last week, I got a text say that I hadn't paid my eFlow. I have an eFlow account, so it automatically comes out. I hadn't been in uh, Dublin or used eFlow for about four weeks, I think it was. So, three weeks. So, I hadn't used it. And yet, yesterday you used your eFlow account and you didn't pay. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, lo and behold, 
I wasn't there, so I just deleted. So just, if you get texts in like that, just hit delete and block the number. Another one just in AIB, due to unusual activity in your card, has been placed on hold. I think we all got that. Just delete as well. And uh, I got one from Permanent TSB. So whoever has the, my number, I just keep delete. Or I keep block, delete, block, delete, block, delete. And they'll get fed up with me eventually. We're back with news and death notices. Stay tuned. Galway Tolls, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. 